following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning in our series, we have been looking at the compassion of Christ, both his compassion, where uh, last week we were, were seeing that he lamented, he wept over Jerusalem, that his heart was broken when he looked at Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've wanted to gather you together, how I've wanted to care for you, but you would have none of it. You didn't want what I had to offer. And he said, now you're going to miss a glorious blessing in this. And we said that that was his compassion. This week, we're looking at him moving into Jerusalem and that he goes into the temple and the story of him going in and turning over the money-changing tables really shows his passion for his people. That, that he's willing to come in and he is willing uh, to disturb your life. He is willing to come in and turn over uh, the tables, if you were, in your life so that he can get your attention. Uh, that he can come in and he can establish his authority uh, in your life and really begin to explain uh, who he is. And then next week we're going to look at the picture of him coming in on Palm Sunday as this king, but a different kind of king. Kings don't ride donkeys. Kings ride stallions. Uh, Kings ride in with massive armies, uh, and they have those who hail their presence. And Christ comes in as a different kind of king. And again, we see his compassion that he's truly a king, but he is lowly and meek, and that he brings together qualities and characteristics that no other king in history has ever brought together. And then finally, on Easter morning, uh, we're going to look and see again his passion, uh, that he went to the cross, and we think, oh, well, he died there on the cross, and that was very passive, but it was incredibly active, because what he did was he went, and he, he took a frontal attack on death itself. He said, the curse of the fall, the curse of Adam and Eve, I am going to take on and I am going to absolutely obliterate and blow it apart and I'm going to knock out the door uh, on the tomb in such a way that for those who believe in me, they don't have to ever be afraid of death again, that they can live life boldly, that they can live life with such a confidence that they know that at the end game, Everything is going to be fine, and in the middle of it, even on the days that lead up to it, we know that God has us, and we have life and life abundantly. What would it be like if you could live your life with absolute confidence that God has everything taken care of? Would you change the way you live? Would it affect you at all? I think for most of us, if we actually lived what we say we believed, life would be very different for us. Well, today, we're going to look at Christ as he comes into the temple. Now, this story is told uh, in each of the Gospels in a different way, in a different sequence, even chronologically. And the one that, uh, Matt, were we able to get the John passage up? Good. Uh, I'm jumping to one that's not normally preached or taught, and it's going to be over in John chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there, or you can look up on the screen here, uh, and it's there for you. And the one in John comes in a way that it's just on the heels of Jesus being at the wedding feast of Cana a few uh, weeks back. We talked on that and said how Christ was the Lord of the dance. He was the Lord of the celebration. He was the one who wanted to see and let us know that our tables are filled when we come into his presence. Uh, That when we come, that he is the one uh, who created the wine. He is the one who created the celebration and said, because uh, of my coming death on the cross. He said, it's not my time yet. 
And for John, that was language that said, it's not my time to die yet. And Jesus said, but when that time comes, you're going to see something. You're going to see the true abundance in life and celebration come through me and me only. Don't go look to any other festival. Don't go look to any other uh, place for life, but come only to me uh, for that. And in my studies and prep, I've preached on the cleansing of the temple over the 20 years that I've been in ministry. And it wasn't until about a year ago I was studying and reading a series on this that someone sort of turned it. And I looked at it in a totally different way. And it really helped me capture uh, what I think is the essence of it, and especially in John's passage, where it comes right on the heels of the wedding feast of Cana. And so we're going to look at that uh, this morning. So if you have your Bibles... Uh, Look there at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, and this is God's very word. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us? uh, Do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. This comes from a a series, and I believe it was Jeff White who preached it uh, back in uh, 1996 uh, from the Redeemer uh, Church up in New York. And what White really highlighted and what struck me was as we walk into this situation, as we walk into this picture of Jesus has now moved into the city, and he goes to the place where you would imagine he would go. He's the Son of God. He is the sacrifice. We, we read in our liturgy today, how is it that Christ is our prophet? Well, he is the one who offers, thank you, he is the one who offers continually a sacrifice for us. Well, where in Jerusalem was the sacrifice offered? It was offered in the temple. And so you would think that Jesus would then go uh, to the temple, and that's exactly where he went. And he went, he was appalled by what he saw. Uh, that he went into the temple, and it had become, and the word that he uses there is he says, you've made this a marketplace. The word is actually the word in Greek, a euphorium, uh, an emporium. Uh, that you've made it this emporium, that it's got booths and everything set up. It's become this loud marketplace. And people think, well, that's why he was angry. And, and that really wasn't why he was angry. What he was looking at and what he was saying was, I understand how it worked. Jews at that day had been dispersed all over the ancient Near East. And for them to come back to Passover, they needed to come, and they would have come from Spain, or they would have come from Rome, or they would have come from some of the uh, northern territories of Africa on the Mediterranean Rim. 
And as they came, they wouldn't have carried with them their sacrifices. It would have been too difficult to bring a goat or a ram or a dove or any of that. And so what happened was in Jerusalem, they created a place where they would come. And the only uh, coins that they could use were Jewish coins. They weren't going to use Roman coins or the coins of that day. So you would have to exchange your coins, and then you would buy your pigeon or buy your goat uh, there in the marketplace, and then the priest uh, would sacrifice it on your behalf. And so it was a necessary growth within the work and the ministry of the church at that time uh, of the Jewish church. But Jesus looks and he says, what's happened is you've missed something. In the middle of all of that, you've missed me. And I get very, very passionate when people go through the motions and they go through all of the exercises of external religion, but they forget me. And he said, I'm so passionate about that, that I am willing to come into your life and to disturb your tables. I'm going to come in and I'm going to exert an authority in your life to turn things over and not give you an explanation why at first. Our first question is always why. Jesus comes in at this one and he turns over the tables and he establishes his authority and then he explains why he did it and then we get to see what we gain through him in that. And so the first thing that we're going to see really is the question of who he is. In the wedding feast at Cana, who he was was the Lord of the dance who fills up the tables. He's the one who dresses the tables and fills them. In this one, he's the Lord of the temple who turns over the tables and empties them. And so they may seem like two different Christs. But what you have to understand, and if you're one who's searching out and maybe investigating Christianity, you need to know this. You need to see that Jesus is both. There are seasons in your life when he's filling your tables. You are experiencing blessing. You are experiencing things, and we love that part of it, don't we? But it's when Jesus comes in and he says, but I'm also the Lord of the temple who will turn over those tables if they're filled and they distract from your worship of me. And so we're going to look at that this morning. The first thing is that of authority. And in verse 15, it says that Jesus came in, and it says that he was in the temple And he looked around, he saw all those folks selling these things. And so making a whip out of cords, uh, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, and do not make my father's house a house of trade or a marketplace. And his disciples remembered, oh, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, the picture, what picture do you have in your mind when you see Jesus come in and it says that he made a cord, he made a, a whip out of cords? Boy, I have this huge Indiana Jones-esque kind of thing. I, I have this picture of Jesus stepping in, popping the hat, and pulling it off and going, it's like, oh yeah, and everyone's like, man, who's here? And everyone's looking around. The word there is he made a whip out of rushes. You ever been up to Charleston to the marketplace up there and bought one of those beautiful but overly priced baskets uh, that are made by hand uh, by the folks there? Those are rushes. That's what he made a whip out of. It was the wimpiest whip you have ever seen. It wouldn't have raised a welt on anybody. 
And Jesus just made this thing as a symbol of authority. And he's going around, and there's this picture sometimes with theologians and this picture in our mind that he was out there just whipping people and making welts come up on them. And there was just sounds of all this stuff going on. But basically what Jesus is doing is he's standing in there, and it's by his sheer authority, it's by his personhood that people are fleeing from his presence. Who's afraid of a guy with a whip made out of rushes? Be like, who is he? And they knew him. Oh, this is the Galilean. This is the carpenter's son. Who is this guy? He's not a warrior. He's not anything uh, huge. He's not Goliath. He's none of that. But something about him established who he was. And the people responded first and foremost here, not to what he was doing, not the reason why he came but to who he was. Not by what he could give them or what he was about to do. They responded to his very presence in their midst. Where you see him looking there, he comes in in this way, and it was his presence, not the whip, uh, that drove the people out. Instinctively, people knew that he had the right to be there because they say uh, there in verse 18, he says, what sign do you have to do these things? They're saying, obviously, you must have a sign. You must be able to tell us who you are in order to do these things. He was coming in and saying, I get to do this for no other reason than that I'm who I say that I am. I get to walk into my father's house and I get to turn over these tables and I get to come in and I get to reorient and reconstruct the manner in which you're approaching my father. I get to do it simply because of who I am. Now that does not bode well for our modern culture, does it? What we want to know, why? Think about in your life, when something has happened in your life and you have a theology and it may be loose and it's unstable in certain places, but you have a theological framework and we don't like to use the word sovereign too much because it, it, it carries too much stuff. But there's this word that we use as sovereign, that God's in control of all things and that he orchestrates all things. And then something happens in your life, one of your tables in your life, that you have worked so hard over the course of your life to, to put the accoutrements on. It is set beautifully. People walk by the table of your life and it looks so nice. And people go, what a great decorator and designer you are. How wonderful your life and your family look. That looks so fantastic. And then all of a sudden, based on absolutely nothing that you have done, based on absolutely nothing that you have created on your own, that table is totally upturned. Your spouse leaves you. Cancer hits your body. A child dies. A child goes into rebellion. Your business tanks. Something happens. You fall into addiction. You lose your wealth. I don't know what it is. I don't know what table it is for you. Take it down. Those are all big adult things. Maybe you don't make the grade. Maybe you don't get into the school you wanted to go to. Maybe a relationship breaks apart. Uh, maybe all this stuff just falls and goes around, and, and you don't get uh, your driver's license the first time, or you don't get picked first on the team. I always hated that, didn't you? Gosh, you're like, man, that was just nothing more than humility humiliation, and you're going, great, I get to be this kid again. Whatever it is, the tables are overturned. What's your very first question always to God? Why? 
God, why did you turn over my tables? God, I don't understand why you did this. God, I'd like to have an explanation of why. And Jesus, at some very subtle but not so subtle level in this lesson, is teaching us, I don't have to give you a why. What you have to do is trust me, even in the middle of my upsetting of your life, of turning over the things that you thought were most important, that when I turn them over, I have a grander and greater plan than you do. And you need to trust me simply because I am God. Jesus is saying, I get to do this simply because I'm Jesus. That I get to walk in and do this because of this who I am. I get to do this, and I owe no explanation to anybody else. How does that sit with you guys today? Maybe we could end there. Then you'd go, wow, I'm not going back to that church. So Bill's basically telling me, i got to follow God because he's God. And you want to know the truth of the matter? Yeah. Because if Jesus has to explain everything to me, then that puts me on an equal footing with him. That puts me on a place that says, Jesus, I will accept whatever you bring my way as long as I've determined that it's a plausible reason, that it is okay, and that I'm satisfied with the ultimate outcome of it. Who says that? Only one who is at equal or higher footing than Christ. And so Christ is really walking in here, and he's shaking us at, at a very deep level. And the order of this is important. He casts them out first, and then he explains why. He shakes it all up first, and then he explains why. He comes in, and now the story that you should be coming back to is that of Job. Y'all familiar with Job? Some of you may not be church background. Well, Job was this guy in the Old Testament who loved the Lord, had a great family. Things seemed to be going well. And then all of a sudden, now we know more than Job did, by the way. You know that, right? You read the story of Job, and it's not like Job had the spark notes right there next to him. Going, oh, this happened because God and Satan were talking about me, and I'm going to be okay in the end. No, it's all of a sudden, everything started to happen. Job lost his family. He lost his wealth. And through the constant midst of it, Job was asking, why, why, why? Until near the end, God comes to Job, and he says, Job, remind me of something. Does the lightning have to consult with you before it explodes in the night sky? Did the mountains need to consult with you before they were raised up? Did the seas come thus far and no further because of your voice or because of my voice? And at the end of that dialogue, Job's response was what? To fall on his knees and worship God. Because what God was saying was, Job, what I need you to understand about me is this. I am so significantly different than you. I am so significantly other than you. I am so significantly greater and good than you are that my explanations may not make sense to you. It may not make sense to you uh, that I was having a conversation with Satan and I brought your name up. And you probably went, you would go, why? Why, why not somebody else? That would be mine. If all of a sudden I heard that God was chatting with Satan about me, you know what I would do? You know, you need to talk to Ussery. You know, Johnny Ussery's an awesome guy. God, he could, you could probably, maybe he could handle this, but I can't handle it. We'd find somebody else to go. Uh, maybe I'm going to go with this person or that person. But God was saying to him, Job, you need to understand this. 
that no matter what happens to you, I have the authority to do it, and you have to trust me in the middle of it. Because what we are trying to get to, and what we're trying to root out is this. Do you love God? Will you pursue Christ for who he is or for what he will bring you? Will you be satisfied with Christ just for him and his sake only or for what he does for you? Put it this way, a great illustration I heard. Let's say you happen to be incredibly wealthy. You've got a lot of money and you are getting married. And about a week and a half before your marriage, you come to your fiancé and you say, sweetheart, I know we had all these big plans. I know we had rented out the entire island of Hilton Head, and I know we've got everything coming, and we've got all this stuff happening and all of these things, but I just want you to know uh, that there's been um, a little fluctuation in my financial situation. (laughs) I have lost everything. I am broke as broke can be, but I still love you, and I want to marry you, and we'll figure this out, but I don't have any money. And the fiancé responds, well, you know, I probably need to give that a second thought. So you're really broke. Yeah, I don't have a dime. Like, not one? No, not like one. Now, is there any hope of you recovering all that money? No, probably not. But we'll work hard. We'll start small, and we'll rebuild from day one, and a lot of sweat equity and labor, and we'll do that. And the fiancé says, you know, don't think I'm available next Saturday. What is the fiancé said to the now broke beloved? I didn't love you. I loved what you could provide for me. And now that you can't provide for me what I think I need or want, I don't want you. Would you be upset if your fiancé walked away from you? Let's get the blood flowing. How many of you would be upset if your fiancé walked away from you uh, because you all of a sudden went broke? Let's make it this way. Ladies, you're a beautiful woman, and you've met your man who's so handsome. And then, as you're planning the wedding, you find out that you have breast cancer of an aggressive nature. And the breast cancer, and the only way to save your life is to do a double mastectomy. And it's going to change you physically. And through all the radiation and the chemo, you're going to lose your hair, and your body's going to take a beating. And your fiancé looks at you and says, I'm just not available next Saturday. Hope you understand. Would you be devastated? Because all of a sudden it was never about you, it was about your beauty. It was about how good you were going to look on his arm. And the person never really loved you. They loved what you could bring them. Would you be upset, ladies, if that was the case? If we would be upset on a human level, how much more do you think the God of the universe is upset when we basically say to him, I'll love you as long as... What you provide for me looks good on my arm. I will stay engaged with you, God, not for who you are, but for what you can do for me. That's what Christ was coming in to turn over. He was coming in and he was establishing himself and saying, I am the authority, plain and simple, period. I'm the authority. Wrestle with me first. That's the starting point for us. That's a hard starting point. And then the people came to him and said, okay, we get it. You're here. You've cleaned it out. Now, what are you going to do? How can you show us uh, your authority? That's what they look at him and they say, what sign uh, do you show us for doing this? So 
being a Christian is basically then he's saying this. What I've got to do is I've got to tear it down. Here's why I'm doing it. Because the reason I'm tearing down all these other things in your life, whatever they may be, the reason I'm turning over your tables is because you've gotten distracted in the midst of your worship of me and your relationship with me. That he's coming in and at some level he's saying, here's why I did it. Because here's what's supposed to happen in the temple. The McCutcheon family comes in from their journey. And they come and they go into the temple, into the area, and they exchange their coinage from wherever they are. And then they buy the right coins and then they buy the pigeon. And they're supposed to then take that pigeon or that dove or that sheep and they're to go to the high priest. And the high priest is to take it. And he's to pray. Now the McCutcheons would be gathering around Why? Because looking at that sheep and saying, we understand one thing, that in this temple resides a holy God and we have no access to him except through the sacrifice of something on our behalf. And so we're going to sit and we're going to consider and we're going to contemplate and we're going to rest in and let it wash over us and we're going to do all of that. And then the priest would take that and he would turn and he would sacrifice it and the blood would be spilt and he would pray on behalf of the individual and it was a beautiful, intimate thing. What was described in this temple, was it beautiful and intimate at all? Did it have all of the external uh, functions of religion? Sure. Priests, sacrifices, blood, knives, animals, people, a few prayers, but it was just boom, 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 out, go, next. Next up, good, here you go, next up, next up, next up. And Jesus was saying, the reason that I'm overturning all of this in your life is because I've got to take back up central place in your life. My presence in your life and my house should be a place of prayer. It should be a place of deep contemplation. It should be a place uh, that you want and are with me in such a deep and intimate way that you are considering, especially on a day like today. You're considering what's happening at these tables. You're not just looking up and going, okay, let's see. i got to stand up. And the last time I was there, there were too many people in the aisle. So maybe I'm going to roll around this way. And so I can catch up there and I can do. And, and you forget and you miss all the meaning. You go through the actions, but you miss all the meaning. But what Jesus is saying is, I don't want you to simply go through the actions of religion anymore in your life. I want you to come to church for the right reasons. I want you to be engaged with me in prayer intimately in your daily life for the right reasons. I want you to want me. I want you to take time out of all of this and get rid of some of those distractions so that we can come down and have this incredible deep intimacy. Because what he's saying is this, the distractions, you'll miss me. There's this very, very overwhelming verse in the scriptures that goes something like this. And on that last day, Many will say unto him, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all of these things? Didn't I go to temple? Didn't I buy the pigeon? Wasn't I in a small group? Didn't I go to a Christian school? Didn't I marry a Christian person? Didn't I stay faithful? Didn't I raise my kids in the church? Didn't I tithe? Didn't I do all these things? Didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I? He's going to go, I don't know you. You did all of these outward acts of religion within the midst of the marketplace and you acted and you performed life so very, very well. But what you failed in the middle of that to ever find was me. I want you to know me and to be intimate with me, not to be busy about church life. That's why I hope our church is different over the course of time. 
Are we going to have programs? Yes, yeah, sure. Are, are we going to have different things that we do? Absolutely. But what we want to be is a church that is incredibly contemplative. I want us to be a church that considers deeply these things. And, and I'll tell you this, there's this round thing on the back wall that is so necessary to life, and it's got this dial, and it's got these numbers on it and all. But I look at it, and I go, gosh, we've got to hurry up because these folks need to get going. I would love for a day uh, that we could sit and that we could be, God, I just want to be with Christ and sit with him and his people and celebrate and not be so driven by the next thing that's on the schedule. To be worried about that next thing. And what Christ is coming and saying to us today, most especially, if your tables are being overturned, if something in your life that you thought that you had to have, it was acting as your Savior, has now been obliterated for you, don't just point to heaven and go, why? Maybe take it as an opportunity to say, Lord, would you then fill the void that's missed in this? Would you come and be my life in the middle of this? Because what Jesus then says at the end, he says, here's what I give you. The reason that I'm turning all of this over, the reason all of this is happening is because I want to give you me. And here's the me. You don't need a temple anymore. I'm, it's going to get torn down in a few years. It's going to get torn down and the people went, it's going to what? He said, it's going to get torn down and then it's going to be rebuilt in three days. He said, you see, the reason that I can come into this temple and I can do these things is because I am the temple. This is my house. This points to me, and now I'm here to fulfill it. And so what you gain from all of this is you gain him who is your life. I just want you to hear this today, all of you, but most especially those of you who are wrestling with why right now. The ultimate answer to the why is Jesus wants you to get him. He wants you to get him. And that's hard. That is incredibly hard, isn't it? Any of you guys wrestle with that? Let me let you know something about me. I wrestle with that. But wouldn't it be great to be a part of a group of people who openly wrestle about that together? And that when I'm wrestling with it, or you're wrestling with it, that we're in relationship together, and we look back at one another, and I say, I know it's a struggle. But I can tell you this much, Christ is sufficient for you. He is your life. He will come now with the power of his glory, and he will fill you. Because guess what he then says of us? He says, I'm the temple. And then later in the New Testament, who gets to be the temple now? We are. So where does Christ now take up residence? He takes up residence in us. And so if he was going into his father's house and taking up residence there and he had to get rid of some things, guess what he's probably going to have to do in your life as well? It's awesome when he's the Lord of the dance and he fills the tables. But be prepared that he's also the Lord of the temple who comes in and turns over things that are distractions. So... I just want to be forthright with you. If you're a visitor or a guest or you're tipping your toe back into church, it's not all wedding feasts. There are those, aren't there? Hopefully, there are those. It doesn't just, it isn't, you know, there was an, uh, when my son was looking at going uh, into the army at West Point, they said, basically, here's the way you get through West Point. Embrace the suck. 
It's just going to suck for four years. Just embrace it, and then you'll get out. Some of you have that view of Christianity. Just embrace the suck, and then you get heaven. Folks, there's tables that are filled with the best of life and the best of food and the best of everything, but there's also the seasons that turn everything over. You've got to be able to have both in your theology and in your life. The table we're coming to today could only be filled because it had been overturned. Jesus says, I've got to be central. And so he took up central place in the temple that we can come and he's our sacrifice. So I invite you to prepare your hearts now to come to the table, to rest in him, and to repent. Maybe some of you hold deep agitation and anger towards God for the tables that he's overturned in your life. And maybe he's saying to you today, I had to do that so that this table would be finally satisfying to you. More satisfying than anything else. Let's pray.